1: Welcome to the Mysterious World on Ghost Chronicles International. I am Ron Kolick, your host, the gatekeeper keeper, 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 of the unknown. And this is what we're going to be talking about, the unexplained, eh, maybe, and the unbelievable. It could be. And with me all the way across the pond is the most, most knowledgeable and most prestigious Mr. Steve Possits. might be. I think so. I think you're like the wickedest, smartest guy I know. Uh, a lot would disagree with you. Yeah, I know. But my opinion is the only one that counts.
0: <laughs> we'll be coming on to that fact later.
1: Yeah, really, my opinion? Uh, well, not just yours, but opinion. 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 Ooh. So we've done these before. Uh, we have not. Not too long ago, we did one amazing one, uh, two, two nights actually. And uh, it was astonishing.
0: Yes. Yeah. What astonishes me is how we get away with it. <laughs>
1: yeah. I mean, I like this stuff. I really do. And You know, I mean, I have a degree in environmental science. And the reason I picked environmental science because it's such a broad. Um, you know, field, it's, it's everything really. So it's, I mean, it's everything concerning the earth. And, and, uh, so I'm, i am always been curious and th- th- that's why I, I love this stuff. You know what happened to curiosity? You know, what it did to the cat. Yeah. But satisfaction brought him back. I always say that to my wife and she says that satisfaction brought him back. Meow. What's that? Did Sorry. you hear something? No. I didn't hear. So anyways, yeah. uh, Welcome to Ghost Chronicles right here on Tojinet and Pararex Radio. Hopefully if, if Pararex is up, that is. And uh what the heck? Um Cattle, what was that? I don't know. Anyway. So uh yes, so bizarre, strange, mysterious, they're all interesting. Uh you know, the job I like is you ever see that move Expedition Unknown? Uh, oh
0: yeah, I think Josh I caught Beats. some. Yeah, I think I caught some um, one time. It was over. I think it yeah. was on. Is it History Channel? Yeah, yeah. Or Travel Channel, or yeah, uh, one of the channels. Channel. some yeah. channel. Yeah, I I caught a few where he was going off in search
1: of Bigfoot. Yeah, I mean that's geez, that would be like the ideal job, wouldn't it, Steve? I mean, just do any anything that came across your desk that would give you a whim You go out there and you know. Spend some time actual hands-on investigated. I mean, to you me, know, that would be awesome.
0: I, I I can't disagree with you. I think, yeah, well, one of the things that I would always love to have done would be to, um, if, if money permitted, yeah. would be to spend several years um, living on a boat on Loch Ness. Ooh. And um, looking for the monster. I've always
1: fancied that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know circumstances I mean obviously. there are so many things I would like to experience I would like to go to Antarctica just to be oh, in yeah. that environment we were talking honest.
0: about that last night me, me and my wife and it's uh, really? one, pla- you know, one, one of the places on on the planet I would most like to go well you know
1: road trip do a okay, live show yeah. there at Shackleton Shack yeah. haunted too it's, yeah it is it's in my book Ghosts today uh, but anyway so so, doing... what's that so you've been? No. No. Wish. Only wish. Oh, you wrote but, about speculatively. Okay. So let's look at, you know, we only get an hour, so let's get into yeah. some of these great okay. mysteries. And do yeah. uh, you want to start it or you want me to start?
0: Well, you know, I, th- I think just to preface it by, oh, by talking preface. about The like British... A British series, which was probably the inspiration for many people, um, which was um, hosted by uh, the space scientist Arthur C. Clarke, who's also a oh, sci-fi yeah. writer. He wrote 2001: A Space Odyssey. Yeah. And over here in the UK, I remember growing up uh, with this series on television. There were actually three of them, but the first was called The Mysterious World. Yeah. And I, I, I have remember. all three of them. 1980, wasn't it? it came out in, in 1980 and featured, always started off the same way with Arthur C. Clarke walking down beach. Um, a beach, yeah, wearing a sarong under an umbrella on a Sri, Sri, Sri Lanka. Beach.
1: Right? It was in Sri Lanka. Uh, Sri Lanka. Yeah.
0: Yeah, it's the next island over. Whatever. <laughs> and um, he would introduce some uh, weird stuff and then you know, they would go off on um, an exploration, a, docu- a, a mini documentary. And then he would would come back at the end and say, well, we don't know. And then they would go on to the next week's show and you would, I mean, they did all sorts of monsters of the the Loch Ness monster, ancient sort of astronauts, missing eight men. You know, uh, the Tunguska one was always a favorite, uh, how all those trees fall down Um, and all manner of weird. I was going to say weird shit then. And one that you and I would have liked to have seen, well, we did see, um, but I can't remember it, was his Cabinet of Curiosities, which harks back to what we were up to a month ago.
1: Really? I did not see that one. And I have the whole set. Maybe that was on a different version. No,
0: it was uh, Show 13, the last one Clark's Cabinet of Curiosities.
1: Hmm, how happy I, I,
0: I pulled up the IMDb file for the
1: um, oh, particular interesting. series. Interesting. Yeah, it was. Uh, it's a lot of fun. I have all of it, and we had in America. We had in search of uh, Leonard Nimoy, which was uh, the same thing uh, back in the seventies. And uh, and in fact, Spirit Quest this year is in search of the truth, which is a little bit of takeoff from both of them. And uh, I think it's going to be a lot of fun this year, and and stuff that uh, will give us a little bit of uh, leeway into what we want to bring forth at, at uh, Spirit Quest. So it's going to be exciting. I'm, I'm really excited about it. Well, I'm
0: hoping that we can recreate some of these mysteries at, at Spirit Quest, perhaps some, an ice fall or we could have some raining of frogs or fish.
1: Well, you never know.
0: Either, or we could even
1: recreate the Tunguskary event in the woods. Yeah, that could happen, sure. And <laughs> uh, Loch Ness monster, right in uh, the pond down here. Johnson's Pond, yeah. Johnson's Pond. We'll, we'll call him Johnny
0: and just referring down to the IMDb file I referred to, uh, and that show Cabinet of Curiosities. Uh, it was the last in the series, and talks. Um, it was a collection of unrelated subjects and a summing up of the series, and included the the moving stones of uh, Death Valley. Um, oh yeah, I saw that Wonder one. I just didn't and, uh, recognize the name. All right, uh, I did see it. it. Yeah, entombed toads, ball lightning. Uh, yep. Yep. yep, 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 All right, so let's get on to our show. Ah, yeah. mysterious. Which ones are we going to choose from then? We have a we have a whole
1: world at our disposal. whole Pori. Well, I've got something for you, so I'm I'm going to give it to you first, unless you want to start. No, go on.
0: Okay. All
1: right. Uh, Animal researchers have long been puzzled by certain aspects of elephants' behavior, in particular. They have wondered why the, append- the apparently random groups of elephants, sometimes separated by miles, can manage to move in cohesive, coordinated manner towards the same destination. Equally mysterious is how, without any discernible means of communication, male elephants are able to track down a female e- elephant in the heat. Whoa, I tell you, any guy could find a woman in the heat. Uh, today, research is, uh May find out uh, how this happens, and this is this is the part that I think of you. In 1985, Catherine Payne, a mm-hmm. researcher at Cornell University in New York State, was observing a group of elephants at the zoo when she became aware of sp- spasmodic throbbing in the air. Do you like know what st- I
0: actually did a program with this
1: lady? Get out! Seriously? Yeah. Oh, that's awesome! Well, you can you can add to it later. Um, uh, like it was like a uh, slight shock wave uh, that one could feel, like far-off thunder. Mm-hmm. She then noticed that it coincided with the fluttering of an elephant's forehead. Uh, between the eyes and concluded that these signs were evidence of a uh, special means of communication. Payne and her colleagues, uh, colleagues at Cornell started to investigate the discovery by using sophisticated ultrasound recording equipment. In due, uh, in due course, the recordings confirmed that Payne suspected throbbing had been previously experienced by created sounds uh, below the range of human hearing, capable of being captured on tape, though. Mm-hmm. Uh, produced by the fluttering of the elephant's forehead, the sounds were often accompanied uh, such activities as the arrival or departure of zookeepers and uh, so forth. Uh, so anyway, she, she just really found out that these elephants were using ultrasound uh, communication by just, uh, commu- uh, you know, you producing ultrasounds to communicate. And, and that's, I thought of Infrasound with you, so that's why I thought, uh, you know, you're the sound specialist. Uh, so you actually did a show with her, huh? Uh,
0: yeah, we, we shared a documentary. Um, we didn't film together, but we uh-huh. shared the documentary. It was for uh, Discovery Channel, and it was shown uh, as a two hour special. Yeah. Uh, oh, gosh, it must be 10 years ago now. Um, okay. And it, it, was, you called it was
1: 17 a- back then?
0: Yeah. It was actually called Tiger's Attack because it, it was based on. Uh, Around the idea that tigers are um, used very low. In fact, uh, as with elephants, it's not ultrasound; it's infrasound. Uh, there's a mm-hmm. mistype there. Um, that they use this very low frequency sound in the case of tigers to temporarily stun their prey animal, uh, shock it, in effect, uh, mm-hmm. just long enough for the tiger to get a go at it and, and eat it all up. Um,
1: you're uh, actually right.
0: You're absolutely right. It's low frequency uh, sound. Um. The in the, part of the show uh, actually looked at elephant communication and uh, I, I believe it was the, 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 uh, this particular lady uh, was filmed uh, in America, in California mm-hmm. um, and also in Africa where she had set up uh, adjacent to a watering hole a series of large loudspeakers um, which were used to generate and to play back these very low frequency elephant calls Hmm. Um, and uh, I mean, my particular interest doesn't doesn't relate to stunning prey animals or communicating over long distances. In fact, elephants are not unique in that in that capability. Uh, whales too. Um, yeah.
1: Also, so we, we've it's, always it's, known that about the whales, but not so much about we, elephants. That's,
0: that was a big discovery was the elephants, uh, and and. and I think now giraffes, too. I think the giraffe has now been included into this category of uh, low-frequency-hitting animals. Uh, But they can use these. I mean, to them, it's just perfectly ordinary sound and, and infrasound and ultrasound. Which is the high frequency stuff that we can 't hear is is all perfectly ordinary sound it's just that we don't hear it because our ears aren't tuned to to that particular range you know our our normal range of hearing is is specified as being twenty hertz at one end and twenty thousand hertz uh, at the other end now that doesn't mean to say that sound doesn't exist beyond those limits it 's just that our ears uh, don't work at those limits, but other animals. Clearly, do um, certain species of fish, mammals, etc., etc., and they use sound to communicate. Uh, uh, one of the important, significant um, discoveries with low-frequency sound is that it is uh, it travels over great distances because the sound wave is um, wavelength is so long that it doesn't get interrupted and attenuated by structures like trees or buildings or you know, the landscape and so it is able to travel uh, much further distances than the range that we operate in um or, or even fr- or even higher frequencies which can be reflected and bounced off of you know comparatively smaller surfaces so uh, it To the animals, of course, you know, and and realistically to us too. Um, You know, we are just dealing with sound, but sound that we don't hear by ordinary means. But that doesn't mean to say that we're not aware of it. You know, our our bodies respond and react to these sound waves as they pass through us. Um, And our, our brain also responds and reacts to these sound waves as they pass through us. Now, we don't interpret it as sound In fact, we don't really interpret it as as anything at all except a series of perhaps unusual experiences and sensory inputs that our brain can't really understand. It's getting this information, but it's in a form that the brain isn't used to processing.
1: Yeah, well she was able to determine uh, you know to experience it so that's what led her down that path. So yes. Well we we do
0: experience this this low frequency sound how we experience it. Uh is
1: tea ready? Yeah. It's Uh in the form of
0: um pressure waves because Mm -hmm. sound is just the movement of of air molecules. And so and I, I I'm sure one way that you could all experience this is um, near an airport. You may have felt the jet noise, the you know the sort of low frequency vibration right. of a jet, or road hammer, or or traffic noise. You know, some people can you know even sense this quite distant thunder by the the pressure wave as it sort of strikes their body, mm-hmm. um, and this is exactly what she observed, you know, up close to large mammals like elephants, um, you would feel, or some people, uh, would feel, would sense, uh, this, this fluttering in the, in the pressure field, the pressure wave around them, hitting them. Um, and she deduced that, you know, obviously there was air moving, obviously there was, it was a pressure wave and therefore it was, you know, sound. She wasn't able to hear it. So it was low frequency sound. Um, but, Interestingly, although most conventional sound recording equipment isn't designed—it's specifically not designed, um, or it's designed to specifically exclude low frequency. Sound engineers hate low frequency sounds; they call it rumble, mm. um, and causes them no end of problems. So, the things that you know—we our, our normal recorders, our computer record sound cards—cut off at twenty hertz. Uh, but you can you can. Um you can record these sounds and you can look at these sounds in exactly the same way as you would do with any other sound but you just need to have the equipment adapted, modified or or
1: specially made That being said, it's time to move on and I think that's what that bell was for No, it was an incoming message actually <laughs> Right, you Your turn <laughs> uh, Well I was going to
0: look at something, some part, some bizarre part of um, human activity. Um, That's fine. Rather than because there has been a a change um, in in our culture in in recent years. Mm-hmm. I mean, we've talked before about the the increase in the flat Earth phenomena and the number right. of believers who who. Um, mm believe that the world around them is, isn't actually a sphere, it's, it's flat but there is another interesting phenomenon that's taking place, I mean starting to take hold within society um, and there are many, many you know, sort of YouTube channels now devoted to, to this sort of, uh, thing, it's called the Mandela effect, which is a which in which a lot of uh, a, a large number of people, a lot of people, share the same false memory of a past event um, it was actually coined in 2010, so it is a very new phenomenon. Um, and it was called the Mandela Effect by um, a blogger um, who discovered, at a con- at a, I think it was at one of the big American conventions, uh, that lots of people that she spoke to all had the same idea and belief that Nelson Mandela, the South African president, had actually died in prison. And they actually remembered clearly seeing the news clips of the funeral, the people uh, mourning, some people rioting, and a heartfelt speech by by his widow. Um, now, clearly Mandela didn't die in prison. You know, He was released by the South African authorities, and he came out, and he became the president of South Africa, and ultimately he did pass away. Uh, but lots and lots of people had this false memory. And as they dis- started to look at these false memories, these large-scale false memories—not just individual people remembering, but whole communities remembering, whole sort of masses of people re- having these false memories—which included things like um, non-existent Star Trek episodes, you know, episodes that didn't exist, a non-existent um, uh, movie. Um, from 1994 that so many people in America remember uh, Shazam starring Sinbad which was produced in 1994 the people swear that they had on their video you know collections and watched as children um, but it, ne- it never existed it was never made <clears throat> um, but quite recently this is this is sort of escalated into well yes a lot of these people have these false memories these memories that they that they believe intrinsically you know that they remember um and what they're saying is well of course i remember it therefore it absolutely was the case but it's part of and we, we go back to the flat earth thinking, here part of this conspiracy and they blame they they point a finger at CERN uh, this big uh, nuclear accelerator in Switzerland uh, because they were doing some experiments a few years ago where they were looking at um, altering time and, and, and people got frightened and said that they're going to create a wormhole and alter the, the, the dimension that we, you know, the very dimension in which we live and that this is evidence of it and that their memory is actually the, me- the correct memory and that these altered realities that they're now Encountering the fact that Mandela lived, and the fact that the Star Trek episode or the movie never existed, um, are evidence of the altered root universe that that pre-existed the CERN wormhole, which is all very very strange. And what strikes me as odd and very and quite really quite mysterious is this um, large increase in the number of people who have taken. Um, a different route uh, from conventional wisdom. Conventional wisdom uh, says that, you know, you would, a subject is studied, it it becomes, uh, you know, part of science, um, like like the earth being a, a sphere, for example. And we accept that and we move on from there. But these people questioning it, it strikes me that, there there seems to be something at the root of the flat earth, the Mandela effect, and all of these other conspiracy theories, and that is a deep mistrust of authority. And how it's manifesting now is in this sort of weird, where people misremember and misrecall something. Instead of saying, oh, my mistake, my bad, you know, I, I always thought that there was a film, I always thought that Forrest Gump did say, life is just a box of chocolates when in actual fact he said life was like a box of chocolates um, that they trust themselves more than they trust any evidence that you can show them to the contrary that contradicts mm-hmm. their own belief and ideas and experiments
1: you know what's funny about that uh is that it- I know that firsthand and and that, you know, when Maureen and I wrote our new book, uh, Ghost Files, which is coming out in October next year, we swear that things happened at a certain way or a certain uh, aspects took place. And and yet when we went back and listened to the tapes and saw the video, we saw it was not the way we, we, we both thought it was. Uh, so we do have that. That aspect in us and and i I think it's pretty much what our brain is is making our own reality and and that we come up with something and and rather than like you say, we're wrong, we just believe our brain is saying no, it happened we you know I remember it
0: I mean, there are some really straight, you know, even with with some of the the sort of more bizarre examples of the Mandela effect, let's say the famous Monopoly man. Um, Mm -hmm. I'm sure, you know, most people listening will be aware of the the board game Monopoly. Mm -hmm. And they all remember the character. This was the character with the top hat and Mm -hmm. uh, running off with the, I think he was called Moneybags or something, or Mr. Monopoly or the Monopoly man. And everybody remembers he had a monocle. I remember he had a monocle. Except Mm -hmm. when you actually look at the logo, uh, look at the design, and he never did have a a monocle. (laughs) Isn't that funny? You know, it it goes through, I mean, even things like chocolate bars and candy bars, the Kit Kat bar, um, people remember that there was a hyphen between kit and cat and distinctly remember it being there, but that was never the case. Mm -hmm. You know, we remember what we want to remember. Not only does it show an interesting... Uh, way in which we mistrust uh, the world around us and trust our, our own judgment over that of you know even what was shown and you know even when it becomes a proven case that you know look this is and then they resort to conspira- shots of conspiracy um, but the more you misremember something um the more fixed in your memory that becomes, it becomes the the reality of that memory becomes more and more real. So, you know, this is why people can pass lie detectors, for example. If you tell yourself the story so many times, you're you will in 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 essence convince yourself. Oh, yeah. And that's how I believe one of the ways it. that you can defeat a lie detector is by convincing yourself first. Because once you believe it to be the truth, even if, you know, it started out as a lie, um and this has implications for psychical research also. Uh, one, of the, one of the great experiments, the Philip experiment, which took place in Canada, they created a phantom. They created a phantasm. They designed a personality. They gave him a name, which was Philip, uh, and a whole series of characteristics, which they used in their seances. And uh, They repeated it so often that uh, they, they apparently created this character. And what parapsychology has sort of always tried to do after that is are they dealing simply with the Mandela effect you know did these people create something and then come to believe in it and mm-hmm. it became a reality and of course with it, it, you know your favorite uh, expression quantum physics which we mm, which we introduce periodically physics. to quantum physicists you know they they talk about fixing a reality based upon observing it well in essence, what the Mandela effect is fixing a reality based upon misremembering it or repeating that memory, that misremembered or misrecalled event so many times it's mm. It's really quite a fascinating insight into the human psyche, although it's quite frustrating when you you know you, you keep getting bombarded with people telling you the world is flat and that Nelson Mandela died in prison. Wow, are
1: they connected?
0: Uh,
1: I don't think so, apart from the fact that, you know, neither happened. <laughs> what? <laughs> the world didn't get flat? Maybe we get squished and we didn't even know well, it. Well, it could get squished, couldn't it? With that but, new you know, rock I mean, that's I,
0: coming in? You know, I, I remember things that distinctly could never have happened. I had surgery some years ago, and I distinctly remember waking up in a hospital, in a recovery room, and a series of events took place, um, and I remember looking around the room, and... I, was, I wasn't even in the same hospital. Um, I wow. was, at that time, I was working in hospital. I was a nurse. And I, was, I had a very vivid uh, recollection of waking up in the department, uh, the recovery room of the department of hospital I was working in, not the one I was being operated in.
1: Hmm. That being um, said, we're going to have to take a break. <laughs> so whether we're coming back or not, we're not sure, although I think we're coming back. You're listening to, listen to, to Ghost Chronicles. <laughs> I remember distinctly of us coming back. <laughs> You're listening to Ghost Chronicles International. Steve parson and Ron Kolak, right here on toginet and Parex Radio. We'll be right back after the following messages.
0: Welcome to toginet
1: Radio with a cutting edge. An oasis in this hectic world. The creepy and the kooky, mysterious and spooky. They all talk outly kooky. the parex family. The shows are paranormal, not stuffy but informal. The topics are abnormal, the parex family.
0: They're strange. Arranged. unrestrained, so grab
1: your favorite rule. it's time to rendezvous, as we give awards to the Para-X family.
0: And welcome back to part two of the pilot episode of a new show called Ghost Chronicles International. If you think you've been here before, that might just be the Mandela effect. Because oh, could here. be, could be. And, uh, well, it's actually the mysterious world of Ghost Chronicles International because... if yeah, you think you've been before. The, yeah, you may well have been. <laughs> um, we're exploring some of the oddities and intrigues that, that we don't do when we're doing ghost hunting that keep us interested and amused and entertained. Stuff like the Loch Ness Monster, Stonehenge, the Cernabish Giants. All that cool stuff. Stuff,
1: Weird shit. So, I've got some stuff. You ever hear of the Tenkevs? Oh, wow. I'm probably not even saying that right. Oh, God. (laughs) T-E-N-K-E-V-S of Saratov, Russia. They're an unusual family. Leonard uh, Tenakave. Uh, a factory worker with his wife Galina and their daughter Tanya and Tanya's son Koloya uh, reportedly have the uncanny ability to make metal objects stick to them, according to Valor- Dr. Valerie Lipovash. What do I always get these names? Professor of physics at uh, Saratov State University. The four. Uh, have only uh, to concentrate and think about generating heat inside their bodies in order to trigger the alleged magnetic mechanism, which is sometimes very powerful. Linoid, for example, who was born in 1928, reportedly can cause up to 52 pounds of ferrous metal, uh, you know, iron-containing things to stick to him at any one time. Removing it afterwards, according to Dr. Linifor's, is very difficult, like dragging a metal object off a real magnet. When the family was flown to a Japan to appear on a television program, their talents were witnessed by Dr. Astion chief physician of the Dojo Siri IEI, oh my God, Hospital of Tokyo. <laughs> <laughs> People are tuning in just to see me butcher these names, yeah. who uh, promptly commented... There is absolutely no doubt that objects stick to their bodies are magnetic. <laughs> so there you go. Well, the-
0: well, the, well, well, magnetic people, absolutely, yeah. Um, mm-hmm. However, there's 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 it's, there's more to magnetism than meets the eye because when you look at some of this some of these claims, and there there, there have been a few videos around down the years, and a few books, and a few chapters in parapsychology books and pseudoscience, and occult books about magnetic people. Mm-hmm. Um, it it's it always struck me and others that there's something not quite right about this because not only uh, if you watch them when they place these objects and, you know, if I throw a fridge magnet at a fridge it sticks but when you watch these people carefully placing spoons and forks and cutlery and crockery and all manner of things, ships' anchors, mm-hmm. um, you know, onto themselves, they're always placed with a high degree of precision and fiddling about beforehand to make the damn thing stay there. Um, also <laughs> quite a lot of the things that they, that they attach to themselves aren't mag- naturally magnetic, you know, glass and plastic and wood and along with the metal, um, you know, you, you see this being done uh, now there have been a number of scientists who've looked at this and what mm-hmm. they've tended to deduce is that what you're dealing with actually isn't somebody who's, gen- who's actually magnetic in the sense of you know, ferromagnetism uh, where metal objects stick to uh, ferrous metal mm-hmm. objects stick to magnets um, <clears throat> but what you're dealing with is sticky people um people whose skin is a bit more sticky um, than the norm and if you um if you sort of you know like a window sticker or a car sticker if if you Press something mm. to somebody's forehead for it, and you can get thermometers to do that that stick to your forehead, and they're
1: not magnetic in any way. They're just, they. they yeah, just I mean, but I'm looking so at a picture thing. of this guy, and he's got a really heavy iron. Yeah, and, yeah, and, and uh, on top of the
0: iron, there's three bricks, and there's some
1: forks. And I mean, it's a, a it's, chain, and you know, this blah blah I mean, blah, it, blah blah it, blah. It was well, but I mean, you, you just threw out the two doctors that investigated this, and, well, and did
0: not throw anything out. I, I simply said, yeah. what I simply said was the interesting are, thing about sticking more than just bits metal to the body and they're not doing it in the way that magnetism is normally working now it could be that they have an unusual form of magnetism mm-hmm. that, that requires an object to be put in a particular way um, but you know I,
1: I, as a kid and it um, depends you know how you know you know yourself uh, the, the strength field of a magnet uh, dissipates the farther that you get away from it, so we don't know where in the body this magnetism is so maybe no. because of the, you know, it could be to the very core or so that you have tissue and everything else that yeah. uh, separates it Absolutely. But, but anyways all, but
0: also, but also it appears also anyways with friction.
1: it appears in 1987 uh, after the nuclear accident at Chernobyl that when it, that it first started happening to this guy so he yeah. believes there is some type of uh, nuclear connection <laughs> And uh, there's another example, of course, in June 1990, which is not that long ago, uh, a militia patrolman uh, who was uh, 55 years old uh, was on patrol, and he just soon realized that metal objects started sticking to him. And in 1991, the Bulgaria's Sofia Press Agency reported that uh, no fewer than 300 magnetic people had turned up to, because uh, they'd ran a little contest after they found this guy, and to to show off their ability. So there's a, there's a variety of them out there.
0: Oh yeah, I mean they range from people who there are there are a number of people, and i met some um, down the years who claim that they cannot wear a conventional wristwatch because the the natural um, magnetism of their body. Mm-hmm causes the mechanical workings of the watch to to uh, stop functioning or to run in in some you know mm-hmm. uh, unusual fashion, and I, we know that you know certain types of animal birds, for example, have magnetic particles within the brain that allows them to navigate over great distances, and that that uh, these biomagnetic particles exist in in other animals' brains, and it's been it's been speculated also they exist in the human brain. But what we're dealing with, I mean. It, it doesn't require a huge magnetic field but it does require a substantial magnetic field in order to stick a fork to you know a metal uh, fork to Mm -hmm. you know a magnet you know a weak magnetic field simply won't do it but what is interesting when you look at some of these claimants is that the objects that they select typically you know they tend to have a smooth flat surface more like a window sticker um, then, uh, and in fact, you know, one of the photographs that I think we were both looking at uh, is this guy that's got a flat iron attached to his chest. that's held mm-hmm. up by brick. It's then supporting three bricks. Um, now, you know, we can easily, very easily test for magnetic fields. I mean, this right. is a, the dead simple test. They stick somebody in front of a magnetic compass, which is an incredibly sensitive way of determining if it
1: is. However, a field. Steve, however, you know from yourself because not too far from where you live there are stones. If you put a magnetic compass to it, it doesn't point north.
0: I wasn't, yeah, but it, it is reacting to the magnetic field. And what i what 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 has been done mm-hmm. is that these people do not um, distort uh, compasses. They stick forks to their body and flat irons and ships' anchors and all and manner of other metal crap. Do you do you, so have, anything so,
1: to, do you have any research to, to back this up? Uh,
0: well, I could I could shovel it around on the bookshelf, but we'd rather well, actually <laughs> show all the facts. So out, but, with
1: that being said, we're going to move on to our next subject. <laughs> yeah. Okay. But you know, what I, I
0: I don't I don't doubt that it needs studying, but you know, we do have to eliminate. Mm-hmm. Um, the possibility of somebody just having sticky, clammy skin mm-hmm. um you know, and do you know, do, did you not used to do that thing as a kid that I used to do where you'd stick a spoon on your forehead,
1: oh yeah,
0: yeah, yeah, I mean that wasn't magnetism, was it no,
1: moving right along. <laughs>
0: Yes, moving on. Let's go back to another favourite of mine, that Arthur. That ah, um, oh, this Mr. is going to kill me, I'm sure. The Umbrella Man, um, which is Lake Monsters. Ah, Lake Monsters. You know, uh, Your in, favorite, my, in my particular case, my my passion for Nessie. Hmm. You know, having I've been to the Loch, I've seen the Loch myself. I went up there, and I was intrigued. I, you know, I, I admit when I went up there, I I went because. Um, I'd seen the programs, I'd read the books as a youngster, and I was mm-hmm. I was kind of fascinated by the idea of a plesiosaur living in a, a Scottish lake. Oh, isn't it so cool? And, you know, it fascinated me. But, you know, I, when I went, I was an adult, and I, I didn't for one minute believe that I was going to come face-to-face with a plesiosaur in Loch Ness. Um, you know, I treated the whole thing as, as a holiday with the added attraction of spending uh, dawn and dusk each day uh, for two weeks, looking at, you know spending time two or three hours per day, uh, getting up at, you know before the sun rose and um, going down to the lock side, setting up cameras and, and binoculars mm-hmm. to wait to see if if I too could experience something. One of the things that did it, that, that immediately became apparent you know, almost on the first day was the fact that uh, first of all. Um, I wasn't being fooled by any of the normal explanations that are being offered, such as boats and otters, and in the case of Loch Ness, bizarrely, an elephant, seals, oh, uh, and yeah, I I dolphins. Yeah. Um, not for one minute. I saw boats, I saw seals, I saw dolphins, I saw, you know, sort of the natural marine life of the lake, and at no point was I confused uh, by any of it. And I. I'm not somebody who, you know, spends his life by the side of the lock, um, looking, you know, looking over water every day. What was also interesting was speaking to the inhabitants of the surrounding towns, um, people who uh, worked in the fields or worked, you know, overlooking the lock uh, on a day-to-day basis. Um, these, you know, these people were also, um, you know, way more than me familiar with the with Loch Ness. And its environment, and they all were saying and claiming that they had seen the monster, that they had seen this thing, this animate object in the Loch. Now, when you when you come face to face with Loch Ness, um, it is a truly vast body of water, um, and it's it's not well, you know, it's not designed to be well observed. Uh, back in the nineteen thirties, when they put the road um, along the south side of the Loch, they did you know sort of uh, blasted and, and demolished their way uh, you know um, alongside the lock clearing as they went and over the years uh, when I last visited about five years ago um, all of the vegetation has grown up and so you start at one end of the 25 miles of the lock side and you come out at the other end and you barely get a glimpse of it except for sort of two or three key spots um, the rest of the, the time you get sort of little glimpses of the water through the through the vegetation and through the trees that have grown up and it it struck me as you could put a nuclear submarine into that body of water and most people would never see it really but it is it is a huge body of you know incredibly deep i think it's a 900 feet in, at the, at the deepest points um
1: but they always make it look like it's it's small you it, well, by the standards of
0: the Great Lakes, it is. It is. You know, it's it, it's it's a billion a mile wide and twenty five miles long. But in terms of its depth, um, it contains more water than any than all of the other for sort the of, bodies of water in the United Kingdom combined. It, you hmm. know, it truly is a huge body of water, um, and you could you could easily put something very large like a nuclear submarine in there, and a lot of people would miss it. Um, it also struck me that a lot of people never really look you know they they're, they're going on their daily lives backwards and forwards and you know you're watching the road as you're driving you're not looking to the side except for you know you might glimpse and glance to your side occasionally mm-hmm. um but um during the first week we were there we did have um myself and uh, the person i was with had a very in- interesting and very unusual experience uh which we were able to explain um but it struck us as uh, certainly um, for us a highlight of, of that first week. Um, and we'd gone down uh, pre-dawn to um, Inver, in we used to call it Inver Fried Egg, Inver Faragee, mm-hmm. Um and onto a pier that was about three foot higher than the, than the water level, uh, the Loch Water. Now there's no tide in Loch Ness, it's, you know, it, the water level. Barely rises or falls. There are obviously, you know, like any large body of water, when the when you know the wind blows, you can get some quite fierce waves whipped up. But there isn't a sort of swell that you would get in the ocean. And this was a flat, calm day. The lake was like a mirror, and um, we got down there. The sun came up, and it was perfect conditions for you know we were expecting you know, Nessie to pop up and have a look around and swim past and give us a wave. But what we did see coming down the lock was a huge Wave. The wave was about three foot high um, because we were about three, three and a half feet above the water um, on this w- old wooden jetty. And the wave actually broke so that it splashed over the top of the jetty. So we were able to estimate the height of two and a half, three foot, say. Um, and it continued on its way down the lock. Uh, I, it, it really did catch us up. There was this big v that we could see in the water as if something extremely large and we're talking you know massive the size of an oil tanker was displacing water in the lock Um, we we kind of guessed straight away that we would we'd seen a seismic wave pass down the lock because the lock nest is on a a, a thing called the great fault Um, you know it's it's a huge uh, um, tectonic fault that runs uh, sort of northwest Southeast through Scotland, and is, you know, has minor earth tremors on a certainly a weekly basis, and that some of these are responsible for these big waves that you that you do see going down the Loch um, that people have mistaken for the monster. Now, what's also interesting about the Loch, uh, from my point of view, is that the more you look, the more you you, you I began to realise that. You could put a substantial creature into the lock or even a population of creatures, but clearly never a plesiosaur. And there was certainly no possibility of it ever swimming in and out of the ocean through underground tunnels or up and down. You know, um, some of these ideas where there's underground. Uh, tunnels that, that connect it to the ocean because Loch Ness is about 25 feet above sea level mm-hmm. so if that tunnel did exist, Loch Ness would be much lower in fact it would empty um, out into the ocean um, but the, the was, there was a lot of potential for a large perhaps eel-like creature to exist and across the North Sea in Norway um, there have been researchers who found large Elvers, which is the larval form of the eel. And some oh. of these, these lar- larvae, um, if, if grown to full size and they haven't found the full size sort of adult that, that produced the larva, um, you know, if you compare it to the, the normal common eel or the conger eel or, or, or one of the others, we're estimating this eel to be in the 20 to 30 foot category. So you're dealing with something the size of a large anaconda. Um, And if you look at the reports that people make, then it becomes much more plausible that you're dealing with some large marine aquatic, like an eel. And Loch Ness, um, when they've sent cameras down, when when they've trawled it, when they've explored the bottom of it, has a vast, and I mean vast, population of eels. Now, these are just your normal three to four foot long eels. But conditions are certainly right for that particular type of animal. And I don't find it inconceivable that a much larger variance of that particular species could exist. You know, in in British waters, we have conger eels that reach 15 feet. Um, You know, so I think it's perfectly conceivable that a large eel, uh, you know, species of eel could exist in the loch.
1: Yeah, it makes sense. So that's your theory of what the Loch Ness monster is?
0: that's a, an idea that i i don't find any evidence to dismiss and to to uh ridicule i mean it, it's clearly implausible um you know that it's a pleaser so uh, i mean however romantic and yeah, 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 the yeah. idea of you know a dinosaur wandering up and down Loch Ness you know, or, or hauling itself out of the water but you do have some very interesting, uh, there was an original report from the 1930s with the motorist husband and wife driving along the north road uh, the north side shore road of, of Loch Ness when they encountered what they described as a large monster um, you know, that slithered across the road in front of them and disappeared towards the loch um, now, what whatever they experienced, whatever they saw, I don't know, um, and will never know, but that's an intriguing, you know, one-off report. You've got the famous surgeon's photograph, of course, with the, the famous head, which I think everybody now accepts that what you're dealing with there was, in fact, you know, the the, the uh, model uh, atop a toy submarine. Um, mm mm-hmm talking to the people who live there and see the loch on a daily basis the, the 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 people who work in the fish farms on on the lock side um you know they many many of them the majority of them have had some experience of a large animate object animal in the lock um, and these are people who are never going to be fooled by you know an upturned boat or a dolphin
1: or a seal, right? Which, that's their that's their backyard. They're used yeah, to it, yeah. yeah. Yeah,
0: and so you know, I find it unlike you know. Well, I think Joe Nickel went up there a few years ago. Oh, and, give me a break! Uh, and <laughs> you know, immediately explained everything away. Yeah, of course he did. But I think that I think that denigrates the evidence, and I think that I think that is dismissive to the witnesses. And I think you know, science has. I mean, there have been several expeditions, many expeditions to Loch Ness. Um, and some of them have produced intriguing results, you know, the deep scan sonar surveys that were done um, Mm -hmm. met very, very many famous
1: Finn picture, right? well,
0: again that one has been looked at and has been shown that there is another possibility there another
1: possibility, but it's not But
0: what's interesting, when they've done the sonar scans is almost invariably they produce an anomalous hit a deep hit on something large and that happens on almost every sonar scan that they do of Loch Ness. Oh well. Wow. So, I think um, the case there for the Loch Ness monster, or whatever it turns out to be, I think I think were. Um, it's perfect. I mean, only was it only a couple of weeks ago they discovered a new species of large ape. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. You know, there's still an awful lot we don't discover
1: sure there's, there's some Id- there are some creatures that we thought were extinct that have showed up uh, in recent history uh, you know to not too recent future. I mean there have been tons of reports coming out of uh, Africa about mm-hmm. uh, dinosaurs being there so i mean, mm-hmm. I until- mean you know, was it two,
0: two three weeks ago, a large ape the size of an orangutan, a relative of the orangutan. Mm-hmm. Uh, was discovered that this thing is, you know, it's man-sized. And we only just noticed it. We only just discovered it. Hmm. So there's a great deal for us yet to discover.
1: All right, so I I just want to mention something, and I know we're running out of time, but this is kind of like a public service announcement, Uh, you know, and speaking of water and so forth, you know, most people... uh, you know, they have a little hesitance about going to the jawn sometime about because they hear reports of snakes and stuff coming out of the toilet and biting you on the ass. <laughs> well, believe it or not, that's not necessarily false. Um, animals, uh, there are reports that animals, yes, have been bitten people who were at the jawn. There are two ways for animals to make their way into the toilet. First, if your house is connected to a municipal sewer, the drain leading from the toilet connects to a larger pipework, and that goes to the sewage plant. The network. who I love the sewage plants. Just like in the X Files, where they always find the creatures <laughs> in them. Yeah. yeah, the networks uh, have many uh, entry points, include manholes and in other uh, people's toilets, and uh, people sometimes flush. Things like snakes down our toilet. And guess what? They don't necessarily die. Uh, because food, everybody washes down the sink. I go down these pipes as well. Rats and other lovely creatures, uh, uh, also snakes, uh, will go into these things and can make their way through the pipes and into the bowl. Mm-hmm. The second way, which is much easier and quicker, is that most houses have uh, events that run up to the roof. Uh, you know where all that obnoxious sewer gas gets to escape. Uh, if the vent isn't covered, rats, snakes, frogs, and even squirrels can fall in and unexpectedly land in the main drain line. They scurry to the nearest exit—the toilet. Ah, there you go. So there you go. Well, it's not I f- mean, wasn't
0: wasn't there only quite recently? Was it New York? Um, somebody's um, pet boa constrictor got out and appeared um, through the U-bend in a toilet in an apartment several floors below mm-hmm. was recaptured. So, you know, these things, I mean, you know, a large snake, they do yeah, live. in 2005 you know, in Manchester,
1: a 10-foot boa came out of the toilet. There we go. Yeah. yeah.
0: I mean, I remember a holiday in, um, well, a trip around in Florida um We Down there in the gas stations and the the sort of uh, street-side stores, you can buy gator heads. And I remember uh, buying a gator head for $5, I mean a small one, and um, placing it in in the aperture of the U-Bend for my roommate to
1: discover. (laughs) That's so nice of you. (laughs) <laughs> and, and I remember, I remember, I remember my sister back in the day had a, uh, an alligator purse and it actually had the head of an alligator, the claws on an alligator, and even the skin was all made out of alligator, which is bizarre. Believe it or not, we're out of time. Can you imagine that?
0: <laughs> That's it. That's gators for you. Hey, find me on gators, uh, an interesting one back to the late monsters, mm-hmm. um, a few there was some drone footage um there was there was a rumor this, this came out of greece quite recently there was a rumor that uh, a farmer had been reporting that several of his cattle had gone missing at the side of a lake um and he let, he later claimed that they'd been eaten by a large crocodile or alligator and of course everybody there's no crocodiles or alligators this is greece not africa mm. anyway a guy flying his drone over the lake a few months later uh, managed to capture some video footage of an 11-foot alligator living in the lake. Um, there you somebody, go. Somebody let it go. It'd have been a pet that had become unmanageable. Um, they 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 got some very very clear video footage of it. And um, anyway, when they subsequently um, a few weeks later went to look for the thing, they found it. Uh, it hadn't
1: survived the winter. Oh, that's a shame. I'm just still waiting for shock needle when sharks are falling. <laughs> <in the
0: sky. laughs>
1: that would be so awesome. You and I could, uh, you know, go out there hunting for them.
0: need to, yeah, just climb a tall building with a. Don't you need to have, like, yeah. We,
1: some... we have guns in America. We're fine.
0: <laughs> but guns aren't cool to mention this week, are they?
1: Oh, whatever. Uh, it's part of life that sounds very cruel and i don't mean that in any way that sounded really bad so i take that back anyways we do have to go thank god <laughs> so uh there you go this is our show in the mysterious world and um i don't have nothing else to say yeah, and that's in itself is a mystery hey are we having a guest next week
0: we are we've got dr callum cooper
1: Thank God he'll stop calling me when they have the show.
0: <laughs> well, I finally, you know, we finally relented. He called you. I mean, he even called at 2 o'clock in the morning, didn't he, when we were doing the three-way show last week?
1: Yes, yes. It's finally,
0: amazing. So I did. He's up in Edinburgh tonight doing a talk on um, – the paranormal in water. So I'm going to ask him about that because we did something on water tapes a few years ago. Oh yeah, we did. We, you and, and I did. A,
1: a, you and much. I did a thing on a, a show yeah. not too long ago. And of course, he's been swimming around
0: in an isolation tank. For the yeah. Well, how's that going for him? Just well, we'll think we'll if
1: water has green. memory. We'll poor, those poor <laughs> molecules. And tune, tune in next week and when we'll have you? parasite. Cal Cooper.
0: From goalies to ghosties, long legged beasties, and things that go bump in the night. Deliver us, good lord.